0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. All right. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the show. I am Hody Johns. I'm Jordan Kleinsmith. And I'm Brian Walgemuth. And this is Enemy of My Enemy, where you get to hear from left, right, and center libertarians about various issues. Today, we're going to be talking about the border crisis. Uh, if we're allowed to call it that. So for the last two months, immigration numbers on America's southern border have sharply increased to uh, about pre-COVID like uh, in, in fluctuation. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Mark Morgan had been warning uh, since his presumptive appointment that summer months, uh, the end of the pandemic and the hurricane season in Central America would all result in elevated numbers. So we did have some warning that this was coming. Uh, there was some posts about the from the Washington Post and from CNN talking about how, hey, these immigration numbers are about to really spike on us. Um, Even with two new overflow facilities, fourteen thousand children have been separated from their parents. Five thousand are still in the old cages, the inhumane old cages, and not in the overflow facilities. And virtually all immigrants are being held past the seventy-two hour. Period when it is legal to detain and illegal or a uh, an undocumented worker, a uh, an immigrant. Uh, Jen Psaki said uh, the word "crisis." The Biden administration has released a statement saying that they don't think of it like a crisis, and they're trying not to use the word "crisis." Um, Biden did do an interview where he said, "quote unquote," stay home to people who were thinking of immigrating to the United States. Brian, I think we went with you last time. So let's hear from Jordan first. Jordan, what do you think about it?
1: Sure. Well, um, I think first and foremost, what's most telling about this scenario is just how far the Overton window has shifted on this topic in public discourse over the course of the past 30 or so years. So uh, there's two major things that I was going to recommend that all listeners check out that are um, very good quickly digested, one very shortly digestible, one a little bit longer that I think will really be good historical primers on this. One, to give you an idea of what the political climate was about 30 years ago, watch Ronald Reagan's farewell speech. Um, You can't really think of a more sort of classically conservative character in US politics than Ronald Reagan. And to hear his farewell speech, Which is quite telling that he dedicated it entirely to talking about the fact that he why he loves America is that any man and or woman presumably uh, in the world can come to America and become American. And that we renew ourselves periodically. And you hear someone talking about a free flow of immigration. And this is, you know, the head of conservatism at the time, you know, of of his contemporaries. This is somebody who signed in 1986 an amnesty bill um, giving amnesty to three million undocumented uh, uh, immigrants on shore. And so we've gone from that to a complete flip where, you know, back then, basically both sides of the spectrum, both Republicans and Democrats were saying, we favor a more liberal immigration policy where people can come here rather freely and they can go home rather freely. And that was pretty much the case. Now, if you want to see a, a longer depiction of our history in America with immigration Take a look at the recent Netflix series that came out called Amend, The Fight for America. It's actually a really good series from a historical credibility perspective. They use a lot of first source, uh, sources, uh, primary sources where they actually use the, um, public speeches and personal correspondence of, of like Abraham Lincoln, a lot of notable figures back then and have people perform them. Um, so like it's a very credible, uh, historically production, I would say, um, but it really goes into the great, history of um, immigration in the U.S., and namely, immigration centers around the 14th Amendment um, of the Constitution, and that and that's really the focus of that amend series. And they talk about all the different groups um, that are impacted by that. But the sixth and final episode is all about immigration and immigrants and how it really impacts them. And and really, back in the late 1800s, when that amendment was ratified, was when we got the clear doctrine of what people call birthright citizenship, which is the idea that very clearly in the in the Constitution it says. You know, anybody who is naturalized or born in the U.S. is a citizen plain as day. Like, that's what it is. And yet in recent years, we've had people try to say birthright citizenship is crazy and anti-American. And they've tried. But that's been in the Constitution since the late 1800s. And so it just kind of goes to show this shift that's been happening, you know, before our eyes slowly. And it was really kicked off with Bill Clinton kicking with the um, his passage. I think it was in 96 of um, and, you know, Newt Gingrich was speaker at the House at the time. So this was a biologist bipartisan exercise in evil, as I would call it. Um, But basically, um, they, they passed the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996. And this is, it was really the first time, I mean, 25 years ago, that's really when, quote unquote, illegal immigration really became criminalized in a true sense. Like, that is when People who were trying to come to the U.S., even if they're seeking asylum, even if they're seeking, you know, relief like is happening right now in a lot of Central American countries. Because we went down there and meddled in the many cases, and you know these people are have awful conditions as a result, and they're coming up here. And if you look, though, you know pre ninety six, they would have been cu- they would have come in, and then they would have been say monitored. Um, and you have more of a scenario of sort of innocent until proven guilty, like we would operate in a normal sort of you know uh, situ- uh, situation. Now it wasn't clearly black and white like that. Like back in twenty four, I think it was was when um, nineteen twenty four is when they. St- started issuing the first uh, visas that were required for people to come in the U.S. And that was used sort of disproportionately and forced against, you know, different groups. I myself, am the product of a very liberal um, immigration policy. Both my mom's parents came over from Scotland just following World War II. And my dad's mom came over from Canada in 1952. And, and in both of those cases, it, the, the general principle was just show up. Like technically, yes, you had to have a visa, but oftentimes it was as simple as like going to the U.S. embassy and they'd quick scribble on something, or people would come in with a scribbled piece of paper and they would accept that as a visa. And it wasn't this like crazy, you know, oppressive um, gatekeeping into the country that that we see now, which again is really only a relatively recent phenomenon. So in the past twenty five years. And what we've seen is the rise of a new prison industrial complex, essentially, that's explicitly targeted around immigrants and the detention of immigrants that prior to ninety six, that behavior of just crossing the line wouldn't have been considered a criminal act. It was, you know, not something that you would have been jailable for. So What we have now, you know, and it really just kills me when I see things like Biden's immigration crisis or the White House's immigration crisis, which, of course, Fox News likes to call it. But this has been a crisis of the executive branch's own making since the mid nineties that has permeated through every, you know, presidential, um, administration since this is not a Democrat or a Re- Republican thing anymore. This is an entirety of the federal government and all of them have blood on their hands. And what has happened with the shifting of the Overton window is to even suggest. So the idea behind the Overton window is that it's the, it's the window or the range of allowable discourse in, in society. And so the idea is you can talk about things you know that go out to this side of the Overton window and you can talk about things that go out to this side but as soon as you go outside those edges now you're a radical and that is something that you know we cannot talk about and that's you know completely outside and they've gotten to the point where they've shifted the Overton window so far that to say Immigrants should be allowed in completely undocumented and allowed to just go about their business until they do something wrong is considered just absurdly radical. But that is the position that I think we as libertarians are obligated to take. And I think the last thing that I will talk about this is that this is something that has had an impact on the Libertarian Party. And if you look back in the early 2000s and you look at, I think it was the 2004 convention was the big sort of inflection point where pre-2004, they had a very explicit plank in in the Libertarian Party's principles that said, We support the free movement of people across borders. We do not recognize any governmental authority to essentially preclude any of that movement whatsoever. And in 2004, they added a weasel word, as Wikipedia would call it. And that weasel word is unreasonable. They basically said, we don't support any unreasonable attempts to restrict free movement of people across borders. And that's a weasel word because it wasn't an absolute declaration of principle anymore. And it gave them wiggle room to try to attract the paleos and the, and the folks who were, were strict closed borders and that, you know, don't believe it. And, and, it, and it was a, a sacrifice of principle for very little, if any gain, if, if, if only I would say detriment um, to, to the party. Uh, but so long story short, um, we have a we have a crisis of the government's own creation that is, in its very definition, you know, something that I, I think libertarians, um, if you know they they truly derive their beliefs from principle, um, should oppose, and that they should see this as something that has been kind of hijacked over the course of. The past, again, just 33 years since Reagan left office um, in in the course of public discourse to make the idea of free people moving across free borders a a ridiculous thing. And and so I just that's my biggest point I want to say is is just to point out just how far this whole conversation has shifted over the past 30 years and really encourage people to reflect like what has really changed in that in that time frame other than huge government encroachment. Um, and, and what should we be potentially reassessing as a result?
0: Brian, your thoughts.
2: Um, the thing is this, I, I remember 86, uh, I was alive for it. Um, I, I was there when the amnesty came through across and it was, a, and if I recall, it was a compromise, um, because there were 3 million illegal immigrants in the country and it was, what are we going to do? There's a few pieces, Jordan, I'm going to take issue with. Not that they're wrong, but I just want to add some color to them. So that's the first one. Illegal immigration has always been, and immigration in general, has always been viewed by everybody who lives here long enough as generally a eh type of thing. We can go back to the 20s with the no Irish, no Germans, you must speak English, things like that. We can go back to even earlier than that with the Chinese on the West Coast. There's always been a why are they coming here? And as a product of someone who was that, I mean, with a last name like Walgamuth, it wasn't like I was born in, you know, in in Nantucket or anything. But, you know, that name comes from Germany and it's because we were immigrants that were forced off of our land to come to this country. So, looking at that aspect of it, I've always been for immigration. But to say that Reagan was the last one and that everything changed back then, there's a few pieces of that. Well, number one, it was a compromise. Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House at the time, and at that point, they had to get something done because they, Reagan knew it was kind of a dead end at that point, and I remember a lot of debate going on over that time frame. Let's fast forward, though, to, to, to Bill Clinton. Remember, we just gave amnesty at that time, back in 86, to 3 million immigrants Bush comes in, starts Gulf War One. We go through that. Bush, no new attack. are gonna read my lips. Oh, by the way, I was full of garbage. Bill Clinton comes in. Bill Clinton comes in on the coattails of running, you know, a far more liberal but also a lot more open platform. And what's the first thing Bill Clinton works to pass? NAFTA. Now, remember the whole point of they're coming to take our jobs guess who they were saying was going to come take their jobs yes in mexico but they're also worried about legal immigrants guess who the big push behind that was what i mean the, the right was maybe a little fuzzy on it but it was hard left labor that was very interested in trying to stop those people from coming in and working very cheap they wanted to stop mexican factories popping up on the border to start having stuff coming in tariff free that really threatened american jobs so if you look at the timing of nafta you know, look at the timing of that bill where it started to criminalize it significantly. It was, it was always still kind of fuzzy. And then you had Border Patrol back then. They would get you in. All right, you claim asylum. So, OK, that started right after NAFTA. But there's another piece of that as well I did want to go over. And that was we used to have in this country most favored status for immigrants that came in. They could claim asylum right away based on the country they were from. What's the one country Obama turned off during his term? And it was never turned back on Cuba. Remember the Mario boat lifts? I don't know if you guys were old enough for that. Oh. You no, know, if you remember early eighties, right? Yeah. Late eighties, all the boats coming over to Miami. Just, if you could make it, you got in what Obama do. he flipped the switch. Well, the preferred immigration route originally was Cuba to a Central American country where there was favored immigration, and then they would go ahead and come to the U.S. and hey, I, I'm here, and they would automatically get in. Obama turned that off as part of normalizing relations with Cuba. So uh, I want you to think about this. I mean, this this is where it kind of gets where it's a bipartisan issue. First of all, we flipped the switch. Which, by the way, we flipped the switch. It wasn't that it wasn't like, well, as of January one, anyone that's not here is no. Obama cut it off. No notice. Sent it out and said, we're normalizing relations with Cuba. Oh, by the way, if you're Cuban and you come here, we're going to ship you back. How do Cubans, how does the Cuban government take it when you leave their country illegally?
0: If you you get famous for it, they'll put you on posters and make sure you're comfy, right? I mean, Elian Gonzalez.
2: Or or, or they'll send in INS to go in and grab you off your uncle's arms and ship you back over to Cuba. Right. Well, if you can throw a baseball really well, then, well, we'll put you on a team. <laughs> so that And that's the problem here is that it's uneven enforcement of immigration policy. Now, one, one eye-opening piece of this to me, and, I'm gonna, I, and I promise to keep this part short. I was down in Belize several years ago, and I was talking to one of my tour guides, and he stays through. And I was like, well, what's it? I mean, like, you don't want to leave, obviously. Immigration came up as a topic. I said, what's it like when you try to go? He goes, the worst part of it isn't the U.S. The worst part is Mexico. And I'm like, really? And he goes, oh, yeah. What happens is when the federales get you, they'll know you're not Mexican. They'll know. They can tell by the way you speak, your, your dialect and things like that, and tell you're not Mexican. So what's the first thing they do? They rob you completely. I mean, everything of value you have, they rob you. And if you take them off, they throw you in jail or they throw you across the border again and you're out all your money, phone, everything else. They just drop you blind, usually. So the guys have told me when they would go over to Mexico to have parties and stuff like that. They, they, the minute they heard the federales, they were out of there because it was worse than INS. At least INS will give you your stuff back <laughs> in, in most cases. Um, but, the, you know, we look at immigration policies as the U.S. is we should be this shining, you know, city on the hill when it comes to policies, but we look at policies when you look at Mexico, uh, Canada is obviously much more friendly than we are, but, Canada, but Mexico, all the Central American countries, things like that. If you're not there, if you, if you're not a native to that country, trust me, you're getting a far worse treatment, which means we should obviously be much more opening as a libertarian. I'm for open border policies, but I'm also for, Hey, could, could you just sign in at the desk, please? And, and let us take your photo. But, and this gets to the other point as well. When my family came here, we had nothing, Zippo. not as most immigrant families in the in the late 1800s, early 1900s had, there were groups set up to help those families, but they pretty much saved up the money and got here and took care of things themselves, which is the big difference here. When, they come, when a lot of immigrant families come here, which some of them aren't eligible for benefits, but a lot of them do come here and get benefits. And there's ways around that and stuff like that. So that's kind of the question we have to ask is, If you come here, especially if you ship your kids over, which, sorry, that one, that always gets me, hey, I'm going to ship my kid over to, to, um, you know, to a bunch of um, meth people living in uh, the town next to me. Um, But if that happens, then the big question is, what are we going to, you know, how are we going to address this? Um, Thank you. So uh, I apologize. Um, But, uh, you know, the big It's how we're going to address that crisis. And I really think it is. Honestly, it should be along the lines of please sign in here. Please provide some ID that kind of validates, that says you are who you are and show us what you're going to do here. I don't think that's a big and I know the government, of course, will take it to the nth degree. I know they'll do that. But there has to be something here where we kind of say, wait, wait, wait. You know, if I, go, if I go to Mexico, I cross the border of Mexico, trust me, I'm ending up in handcuffs and I'm not going to have anything on me after the federales. So we kind of ask, how are we going to do this? And I think it's worthwhile at least of a discussion to say, look, you're going to come here. You've got to at least be able to support yourself somehow and be able to have a place that you know where you're going. If your place is literally, I don't know, you know, it, it opens up doors of, okay, you know, what are we going to do here? Because the last thing you want to do is throw somebody on the street and says, hey, look, you don't know how to speak the language. You're going to go and cross into the country. You no, know nobody. What, what are we going to do here? So and it gets down to basic health and stuff like that. So I'll stop ranting and Odin send it back to you.
0: Oh, it's all good, man. I appreciate it. You know, it's funny. Usually I'm the history guy and you two both went deeper into it than I was even going to on this one. You know, so I, I think for me when I started on this one, I went and I looked at some, some pictures. There is a piece from Axios, um, Steph W. Kite. There are extreme restrictions on being allowed from the uh, Biden administration, even more so than under the Trump administration of being allowed banning the press from being able to film and photograph these facilities. Um, Like I said, they've got two open right now. Only one is permitting uh, two new facilities open. Only one is permitting um, very limited and supervised media pictures. I very The reason I, I mentioned the author as well as the site is because I encourage you all to go see these pictures. They are every bit as bad as everything that you saw under Donald Trump, with the one exception is that perhaps there's these guys have a roof. Um, most of them, you know, at least it's not an outdoor facility. They do not. You know, those metal blankets um, that, that they have, the aluminum blankets. They don't have That's enough of them. Blankets.
1: Yeah. yeah the
0: space blankets. And I'm aware they're a functional blanket. I, I'm aware. Yeah. it's not, I, I get it. I, I understand in case everybody's like, he thinks it's a piece of aluminum foil. No, I, I know what it is. Right. I understand it works. They don't have enough of them. They don't have enough, um, you know, the 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 little mattresses on the ground. Most of the kids, it looks like from the pictures, their feet are going over them. They just frankly don't fit. Even aside from going into rooms. So there's, um, if I can describe this well enough, I apologize to everybody who. who's on a podcast and not on like a video. And I, (laughs) but what you do is you got like the main room down the middle and there's the rooms on the sides and this room in the middle where they're holding everybody while they try to figure out which room has the least amount of not enough blankets, I guess um, that room in the middle is packed. I mean, and packed and, and for whatever it's worth this, um, this um, the media, that I have access to only took pictures of the kids that have been separated from their parents and there is crying. Um, There's of course, it's an editorial. So there's stories and there's interviews and everything like that. In addition to the pictures. Um, But you know me, I'm an American. I only, I'm only going to look at the pictures, but you know, the pictures say it all. No, I'm kidding. I mean, there's, there's people, there's stories of people crying. They don't understand what's going on. Um, there's specifics, like, for example, they're not going to, like, they won't expel girls under, like, girls under the age of nine back into the desert of Mexico, but they will for girls 10 years and older. Um, and this does not, this is, includes kids that have been with their parents when they first came in. So their parents could theoretically pass and have their kid expelled back outside the border because they didn't have the room. Um. It's bad. I I, I don't know. I can't emphasize that enough that these are human lives. And I don't think it's possible to look at these pictures and say, yes, this is what we should be doing. Um, If you don't think we have the money for it, you can really shove it because we have spent monies on stupider things. Um, The money alone that we spent off just blowing up people in Syria would have been more than enough for another overflow facility, um, at least enough to get these people better food. Um, They're obviously not – showering is out of the question. Um, Their their food, their meals – um, there's some kind of off-brand Cheetos called like zoos or something like that that I'm looking at. I don't, I'm fine with off-brand. I get, I buy off-brand too, even I, for myself. I, I'm feeling offended by that comment.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I grew up with Zudos. darn it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but there's uh, you know, they're, they're chips essentially is what they're getting like chips and dip and it's not at all consistent and it's, it's a gigantic mess. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and I, here is the thing. The pictures that I have and the story that I have is from the best of the three facilities. Oh, yeah. That's, that's really bad. Okay. So like the, the, the border facilities are the worst. I'm counting all those as one, although I'm aware there's like a hundred of them, but the border facilities are the worst. Then you go to the two new overflow facilities. One of them so bad. They don't want people taking pictures of, and this is the one that they'll let you take pictures of. And it's bad. And it's, it, 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 like I said, these are human lives. And ultimately, they we have decided, here's the thing. You need to take accountability for your policies. So when you say, I'm going to make a policy that is coercive in nature, even if it's just restricting the f- free flow and movement of people, I'm not going to argue this as an anarchist. I understand if you are have, a, have some state belief as far as controlling this. But this is my biggest issue with the state is instead of doing this and doing it in the most humane way possible and, and tiptoeing and saying, oh, I'm sorry, we have to do this. I really wish we didn't have to do this. I, I wish there was a better way. They are doing this in the most, they are doing this in a terroristic way, in a way to say, get out, go home. You don't want to go through this. We'll separate you from your kids. I have written a story about um, my position. I am, I am, flagrantly open borders if not no borders whatsoever um and they will take i mean there are people here who are pedophiles who have been caught touching the children who still are in ice and they are still controlling the border and with the patrolling the border and they move them to different facilities because they're not american citizens i'm sorry no due process We'll field your complaint. We're still going to have them have sex with your children. Just, you know, somebody else's children at, at this other facility over here. It's filthy. It is wrong. It's despicable. I understand like one bad apple spoils the bunch here. And here's the thing. If you make this policy, you are responsible for those people, right? If you say, I believe in closed borders, then you need to take responsibility for the people that you have enforcing those closed borders. And when something goes wrong like this, you can't continue to advocate for closed borders without fixing what you have. Otherwise, you have to let the humane people take care of it. And so this is, I mean, that's really my thoughts on it. Biden promised, um, it was actually his very first, very first broken campaign campaign promise. He broke it on day one. Um, he's had a bunch, but his very first one, he promised a hundred day moratorium on this. And not only have we have the opposite of that, <laughs> he has done worse than Trump in every way that Trump screwed up and Trump screwed up really bad on this. I cannot emphasize enough that the work that I did and the statistics that I have are mostly under the Donald Trump administration. He has done even worse than that. He had the warning about it and he virtue signaled to everybody by saying, yeah, I'm going to let these guys through because they're human beings. They're people too. And then he proceeds to be the bigger monster. This is absolutely unfair to immigrants, to people who are pursuing the American dream. Now, I do not trust government as much as Brian Brian might to say that. And I understand, Brian, you say they're going to take it to the nth degree and you know, but I know what the government's nth degree. And frankly, this is just what it looks like. We trust them to do something well and they don't do it well. Now, I am also not a total idiot. Now, in my analysis, the illegal immigrants in here currently are a net positive for the economy. Most people outside of there, there are like widely debunked statistics that you can find. I've gone into those before that talk about how they might be a net negative. And then you compare them to the average American and the average American is even more of a net negative. Mm -hmm. If, if you're to say they're a net negative at all. So the, so that is, that is the, that, that, that's the crux of it is that they are positive. Now I understand if we completely open the borders, we would get more people in here. Okay, I am not. I am not ignorant to that fact. I'm aware that more people would apply, and people that aren't necessarily looking for work—they're looking for refuge. They're looking for, you know, other things. They need help, and we have certain policies that make it difficult to allow everyone at the same time. You need look no further than the Scandinavian countries that get held up so high, and look at their borders and how hard, how well controlled they are. This is, this is, okay, now I'll get into some history here. This is why Mises converted Hayek away from socialism was because he found it unethical to control the borders because government would not be able to do so in an ethical way. And that led him from becoming a socialist where he had to control the economy because he said, if he, to do that, I'd have to control the borders, to embracing capitalism where he says, there's no way to control the borders and we let the economy adjust to the number of people who are here. I am a unabashed old school capitalist, I guess I'll call myself because the word these days gets misused quite a bit. But I believe in that capitalist vision and I will insist on it. And I would rather punish the government for their bad policies than punish people looking to get here that want to be here, that want to escape. Look, I understand not all these people, they, they say, oh, they're not bringing their best. That's okay. America, it's inscribed on the Statue of Liberty, we want your worst because this is where the worst people become their best versions of themselves. That was the dream. And it's not idealism to say that that dream can be achieved because we just have a few stupid policies in place that make it so that we can't. And that is, and I would rather go after those policies. I will I will much sooner go after those policies than I will d- Bar a single person from entering the United States because their ID is not good enough because they can probably make it work back at home. Um, This is one of those that I think because of my capitalist upbringing, I'm really big on like old school economics books. We're talking like Proudhon, Mises, Hayek and, you know, and those guys. And this is Adam Smith is big on this. It's just really not one. It is complete. Closed borders is completely incompatible with a free market because a free market means the inclusion of all people. You let them vote with their feet. You let them move how they want. And that is something that we, if we infringe on that, we become a nationalist socialist country. And that is literally what the Nazis were. And I would like to get away from that. So there you go. I, can, I think I can one-up your rantings there, guys. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, just, just to maybe uh, talk to, to Brian's point, at one, at one, you made the point about the selective enforcement. And I, I think that is the key to what you referenced, which was, is that you can't give government an inch um, or they're going to take the entire mile, except for the people they want to give an inch or less to. Um, and, and that's the, the key, um, you know, cause I admittedly, my, my grandparents, uh, three of my four grandparents immigrated, um, and they were all white. They came from Scotland and Canada, and it was under the the quota system that the United States had at that time. And basically, that was around until 1965. And what it was trying to do was maintain the existing racial makeup of the U.S. in a way, which was kind of saying, hey, like – you know um you know uh, and when you know for people that got here they didn't really need much documentation but they were selective as far as where which country you came from and things like that in in many cases and 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 oftentimes it was people that were already here in large numbers that could immigrate in large numbers because basically the quota systems were representative of the existing sort of racial makeup of of the country and so you know i was advantaged because of selective enforcement or my family was advantaged because of selective enforcement. And so I think the the key is to, to look at how can we create a reasonable hedge against potential terrorists or violent actors and things like that, but in such a way that it does not give the unburdened license that the government has to pick winners and losers, which they do. And when, when they have the power to pick winners and losers, it tends to be along pretty bigoted and racist lines a a lot of times, because what do you know? A lot of bigots and racists tend to like to work for the government. So uh the, I think the 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 problem here is one where we really need to be careful. I mean, like the 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 writers of the 14th Amendment were brilliant, if nothing else, but for their simplicity and brevity in speech and saying anybody born here or naturalizes a citizen, period. Boom, that's it. And like we need, I think, just as clear um, guidelines for what it looks like. I mean, I, to just kind of go through some of the fallacies that a lot of folks kind of rely on. Um, I saw a really good retort to one from the LP uh, party, which was, you know, if you think that immigrants shouldn't come here because of welfare policies, well, did you know that uh, 40% of gunshot wound uh, costs are paid by uh, public taxes because people don't have insurance? So does that mean you should also be favoring gun control policy to keep down those costs, you know? Incur- so you, you have to call out those logical fallacies, you know, when you see them. And, and that is absolutely an example of that. Um, I would say that, you know, there's there's plenty of, others that that i would say that's the biggest one though that that um so-called libertarians i would say tend to fall back on is this idea or and likewise you know so-called conservatives is this idea that so long as there's benefits to be had like we can't allow them in here to be taking our tax dollars and really what they should be doing is seeking the legal route and the key thing there is who could you ask um, especially amongst Americans, that could actually describe what that legal route looks like. Like, where do you get in line for that? Where does the line start? Like, what do they do? And exactly. And and, and Brian is evidencing it here visually for those of you listening, is it's all about money in terms of you know, like getting to the front of that line. Line, you know, getting knowing the right people, getting expedited, getting your case, you know, routed to the front of the line, and there really isn't a fair system today. It is not by any stretch of the imagination fair. And and really, what we should be doing is redefining the definition of legal immigration. We shouldn't be looking to um, reform this system. We should be going back to a, a time when there was no system to reform effectively, where, you know, we had people that came into this country and if they committed a crime, they were treated like a criminal, just like any other person. And um, they were not Unnecessarily gatekept out of the country just because of you know a small minority that could potentially be criminals. I mean, so there, you know, think about what are what are all the big reasons why people say we need strict controls. One is keep the terrorists out. Two is protect our labor market. So, like, you can just go down this laundry list of economic fallacies, essentially, that people just fall back on of why we need to close the borders. It's you know, we there's all these terrorists. Well, if you look at The actual data, the actual data shows that. Um, undocumented workers commit crimes with the exception of just being here and existing as an undocumented worker, which I'm not going to consider a crime, but they commit crimes at a lower rate of incidence than the average U.S. citizen. And part of that is because they don't want to get under anybody's radar because they're going to get deported. There's a disincentive there for them to actually be discovered through committing any kind of crime. And I'm not, we need to get rid of that. Don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying there's a lot of these fallacies that people look at now. What that means is, if you're saying, okay, you know, the criminal element is like a half a percent or something like that. So, if you're saying we gotta we gotta treat everybody from the get go as a criminal until we prove ninety nine you know five percent of them to not be criminals and then let them through, you're doing what's called managing to the exception. And in any business context, in any context, that's a horribly terrible thing to do. You should never manage the exception. And and that's effectively what all of these nativist uh outrage seekers and you know they've succeeded in convincing everybody to do is to manage the border to the exception. And and you know again we also have these these fallacies of people coming in here and flooding the labor markets and all this. I mean even you know as much as people want to love on Bernie Sanders and you know all the you know the bottom unity folks on the on on the left. And, you know, I know I'm playing the role of the left libertarian here, but like Bernie is very close borders or, and, and he's kind you know, people have kind of said he's come around a little bit more so in recent years, but you know, that he's very representative of that, you know, the left side of the spectrum and sort of, you know, how they how they feel about that. But again, it's all based on economic fallacy, which is that there's people coming in and taking jobs. They're not. They're taking jobs that go unfilled generally by U.S. citizens if there aren't migrant workers to come in and fill those jobs. And, you know, again, it's just, it's. It, so I think um, one of the things that is often a useful exercise when you're talking to anybody in this context is when they say, well, they should follow the legal route. First of all is ask them, well, do you know what the legal route is? you know, what does that look like? What does somebody get into? And then ask them, why? You know, what, why is that legal route? And why do you think they should follow that? What is it that we're, we're looking to accomplish here by closing the borders. And again, they'll fall back on one of these fallacies. Oh, we're protecting our labor markets. Oh, we're protecting our, you know, the, the, our country from terrorist actions. And again, it's all just rampant fallacy. And, and I think, you know, in, in, to your point, Brian, in terms of just, uh, uh, being careful what we give the government, that's where, again, we we need, if we're going to advocate for a law or, you know, ideally potentially even some sort of constitutional amendment or something eventually it needs to be clear. It needs to be concise and it needs to be in such a way where it's going to actually be enforced in a, you know, somewhat uh, even way and not, you know, um, enforced disproportionately against say different ethnic groups that fall out of favor.
2: I. I, I don't really have any problems with what you said. The the big thing is of course looking at what um, because we always like to be compared to like, well look how they do it in Scandinavia. Look how they oh, do sure. it. sure. Sure. Look how they do in all these other countries. I actually looked at the process to just work. And that that's work in a very forward thinking country which is New Zealand. Mm. Uh, about ten years ago. I went to look for the process of well what would it take for me to work in Australia or New Zealand? And the reality is they have a quota system, too. And yep. so does Japan. And so does Thailand. And so does mm-hmm. the UK. The EU. Pretty much everywhere has a quota system. It's an system.
1: international prisoner's dilemma.
2: Yeah, it's, yeah it is. yeah, It's It's like, all right, well, where do you go? Um, and, and the funny thing is that the same problems we're complaining about here are happening in Australia. They're happening in New Zealand. They're happening in the EU. By the way, remember, the EU is held up as the poster child of, whoa, work. <laughs> And all these countries are going, wait, whoa, wait a right. minute. That's a lot you're asking here. So, and I agree with you that the, the, it should be welcome. Come on in. Please sign your name at the door. Um, and we'd like to get you on the path to citizenship. Here's the classes we'd like you to attend because you're right. The process to get here legally is first you got to get into the quota line. Okay. Well, you know, who's, who's interviewing you? It isn't some sort of like, you know, well-educated, thoughtful person It's the dude or dudette that picked the lowest, you know, oh, great. I got Afghanistan. You know, Mm -hmm. who did I take off in the State Department? You know, I got Zimbabwe. I I sit there at the embassy and interview these people. And I have to say yes or no to a certain amount of them. And guess what? I'm a bureaucrat and I don't want to be here. And guess what they're going to do? (laughs) We like to blame it on racism. We like to blame And trust me, there's plenty of it in there. But a lot of it's more. There's a boring. lot of
1: ineptitude and laziness too.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Usually is usually the big kind of driver behind which gets back to this border thing as well. Yeah. I, I really could solve, I think, a lot of border things right there and just be real simple. It's past federal law that basically says that, hey, look, if an agency wants to come up here, a nonprofit agency, a legit nonprofit agency, not something that Fred started down the street, and wants to drop off blankets, food, stuff like that, Cool. Thanks. We appreciate you getting this little tax write off, you know, up to a certain dollar amount because we don't want you, to, oh, we dropped this tank off for $12 million right off of my thing. No, it's got to be humanitarian supplies, but I'm pretty sure a food bank could probably do a better job of, of feeding these people than than any sort of government agency, which of course, you know, we've seen the private prison systems. What are they doing? They're looking to maximize profit by going ahead and paying out the highest in lobbying fees to go ahead and say, give me this contract. Give me this zero bid contract because it's an emergency. So I I think the real fix to a lot of this and a lot of these problems is obviously transparency. I, I want AOC at that at that fence line again, crying for the parking lot. Um, you know, I want her there doing this. But guess what? She's not there. Why? Because the cameras aren't there. And that's the whole thing about this. It's like she said a few things. Oh, well, you know, I remember when she said that it was her number one issue and she didn't care who the president was. Have you seen her at the migrant facility recently? A- a- any of them? I mean, anything? Anybody? And this is the part that drives me off the wall because all of a sudden it's completely forgotten top. If I talk to my leftist friends about this. They're like, yeah, it's a lot, but COVID's going on. So we got to work mm-hmm. on that. I'm going, w- we can only take care of one problem at a time.
1: Yeah. kind of like good. the war when Obama came into office. Yeah. yeah. you know,
2: Oh, yeah. I, I, I got to take care of this. This, this is taking my full <laughs> attention. Remember, I'm going to shut down Guantanamo. Oh, wait. Yeah. Oh, I can do more for legalizing marijuana outside the presidency. That is a quote from Obama. <laughs> <laughs> Just- <laughs> um, but that's the thing. These people... They want the outrage to 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 get to you know maybe get that middle part of us which a lot of libertarians fall into. And say, uh, yeah, maybe I'll go over and vote for them. They don't care. They really they they may legitimately care. They may think they do. They may think they okay. But the reality is, there's a tsunami of government bureaucracy that's in the way, and that just keeps feeding it. And it's the people that know how to play the system that know how to. Brian gets out his stack of dollar two dollar bills again. <laughs> and 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 just goes ahead and shoves it under the, the door of the various senators who then go ahead and say, you know, an appropriations bill goes in and does this and picks a company that's based in. You can only choose from a company based in this town in Texas that employs 26 people and the guy who's leading is named Herb. And that's the only guy that can bid on the contract. Thank you. Have a good day. And, and that's what's going on. So if we get rid of that, we put a lot of oversight into this. We allow nonprofits to come in and help. Trust me, I think this border issue gets a a lot more attention and B we get these people better treatment right off the bat. And nobody wants to do that. Nobody, nobody. I mean, this, this is a simple thing that we can come up with, with three random dudes on the internet, but the government, no,
0: can't do that. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like, like they're going through problems. I, I think the way they've handled it, and i I like the way you phrase it, Brian, because you could pick a random person, they would do a better job than what is happening at the border right now i mean it's and it's not an like accident. monkeys picking stocks, yeah, right, like monkeys picking stocks right this is but this is this is an in this is intentional yeah right this is this is what the reason I brought up terrorism is because we are trying to drive people away the cruelty is to, the
1: point. That, right, cool that that's it i mean there there is intentional evil and cruelty here and that and that's important to note is that it, a completely incompetent person would not be this evil like it takes right. intention to be yeah. this evil and that was a
2: disincentive by obama
1: he was telling people this is what's going to happen to your kids if you send
2: your kids it which frankly to me it's a little foreign to me to say hey you know what? i really want to go to this country i'm going to staple the, this $300 on the back of my daughter, I'm going to load her up a birth control pill. So dear God, when she gets sexually assaulted, when she's out there in the Sonoran desert, not if, but when that she doesn't get pregnant at 13 and hope that this random dude gets her across the border so she can get in. And I can go, that's my daughter. I got to get in with her. And then you go, uh, okay, I'll let you in. You know, that whole process is ridiculous, but it's also foreign to me to say, You know, I want to do this so bad to get across the border that I take my child and put her through such hell. But then again, as I look at those countries and I go, it's kind of pretty awful down there. But then, of course, that gets back to the whole thing. What are we doing to kind of promote this hell? You know, Mexico could be a really nice place and accept a totally corrupt and evil Mexican government, which is worse than the U.S. But yeah.
0: Yeah. So, what there's...
2: one?
1: You know, one thing I like to think about is um, Ludwig von Mises. Ludwig von Mises was a political refugee from Austria who fled when the Nazis took over. And if that genius was not allowed to immigrate into the United States. What items? What ideas of freedom would we not have? What would the opportunity cost of not having a Ludwig von Mises be to us as an organization, or you know, as a country, as a as humanity? And um, I think that we don't we don't put it in those human terms, like you said, Brian. Like it's hard to even fathom the idea of a father sending their daughter as this anchor, you know, to be able to get them to a better life. But I hope that people would see that as a testament to just how bad their current life is. And we have to be willing to look at, um, these people as people, you know, as the, as the DePest Road said, people are people. And, you know, it's, it's really something that, um, you know I I something I'll just share is that I had some new um you know medical uh things come up in my life this past year and I have never had so much empathy for people going through things with insurance and stuff like that as I've had in this past year. And I think that the whole debate over, you know, nationalized medicine and things like that um, has been one that I've largely been able to shrug off because it didn't impact me directly. Like I didn't feel the direct impact of that. And I was able to then, you know, make, just sort of armchair assessments and things like that that um, didn't have like a, a true skin in the game, so to speak and and I think that that's why it's it is hard to say like man, what a horrific person like they would have to be a monster to send their kid like knowing that they might get or you know might certainly get raped or something but like i think the comparison is what is their reality of their day-to-day life where they chose that as the you know the the uh the winning solution you know that that's what they were going to go with
2: it's usually embroiled in racism the reason why they're leaving
0: yeah so so there's i mean you guys touch on so much and there's a lot Oh, I I we go down the
2: medical thing and I could tell you how the government has totally screwed up our entire healthcare system. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I, 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 formula,
1: believe me, I know.
2: One formula that, that screws up all of medicine, everything. Right.
0: So, There's like, so So one thing uh, that you mentioned a little bit is that I do want to t- t- touch on is this whole welfare idea. Now, there would be nothing more fatal to the welfare state than opening up the borders. You touched on Bernie Sanders and this was one of the reasons he was a closed borders person for so long is because it is a non-discretionary spending, which it sounds better because like, oh, you know, it's non-discretionary. They have to spend it. It's not based on the number of people. It's actually based on the amount of revenue and split among the number of people who apply. So the thing is, is if we open our borders and instead of there being a million undocumented workers we have 60 million they all have to the the pie size does not change unless the economy grows the a slice that each one gets does change so this is why it can be rather like if you love welfare you absolutely need a closed border state this, this is this is proven time and time again you look at the world you look at all the scandinavian countries or whatever you want european countries that that have extensive welfare states. And this is a staple of them is because they say like, well, if we want it to be robust so that you actually are living well, when you're on welfare, we can't have too many people on welfare, right? We need to regulate that number. And so like this number, it's non-discretionary number. And it's something that libertarians kind of, right libertarians slash righties don't exactly understand because what they think is this will bankrupt us. No, the, the dollar amount is fixed. It's fixed on a percentage, but you get it. It's fixed. It's the slice of the pie that will change. The pie itself does not. Now there are some local and state exceptions, but generally, when we at least talk in a federal sense about it. That's what we're talking. What we're dealing with. We're dealing about welfare, and so really, it's it's one of those they say, well, we need to get rid of the welfare state first. No, you don't. Open the borders, and it will collapse. Yeah. There is no ch- people can't live. They you won't be able to live off of the amount of welfare that you would make. So if you really you know, the people who are actually not compassionate to the wealth, welfare recipients are actually the people who are clamoring about opening the borders. If we were to be technical about it, like that, um, there are a few things. Another one, I, you know is what, they, yeah.
1: What, one point I think that's just an interesting one to make on, and and your point's well taken about sort of the the social. Um, uh, homogeneity that is needed uh, in the European countries, or exists in the European countries like Switzerland and Sweden and and some of these others that allows them to have some of the you know stronger um, social safety net programs and things like that that they have. But I think it's worth calling out that that's another good example of that Overton window effect that I, I referenced earlier, and it's the one that the the left tends to talk about the most in reference to nationalized healthcare, where they'll say yeah. that um in, basically the Overton window has been shifted in the u.s so much that if you even hear mention of nationalized health care then everybody goes socialism socialism communism communism when in reality you look at some of these countries that have nationalized health care that um, and and this is not me advocating you know nationalized health care is the best option or anything like that but I, I try to be a pragmatist and say you know wh- where do we stand you know what what do we what should we do based on current situation but um, if you look Look at these these countries. Uh, say in the in the, um, the a lot of the the Nordic countries, um, they are all ranked higher than us. Say in the Heritage Foundation's Freedom Index. So, like, if you look at us at from an economic freedom perspective of like how free is your economy, um, you know, a lot of these countries, Switzerland and and you know some of the Nordic countries, like I believe Sweden is in there. They're ranked freer than the United States, yet they have nationalized health care. So it kind of seems, that is kind of an evidence where um, mostly, special interest groups and lobbyists and, and whatnot have shifted the Overton window on just that one issue of healthcare, just like they've done it on just the one issue for immigration. So you have sort of this this, this uh, Overton window that that exists like on a topical basis, and and this is another good example of where we've been kind of lied to. If you look at the you know, the globe really, and and the spectrum of politics globally. It doesn't really fit, you know, and it's not as crazy to think about nationalized healthcare um, as it is, you know, when you look at some of these other countries that are again, you know, freer, arguably than we are.
0: Sure. But. To, <clears throat> I will okay. save the healthcare talk for a, a different <laughs> day um, because I can. I, 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 it sounds like it would be a great debate because I can, yeah. I can definitely uh, shred up some of what the European countries are going through. Hody, uh, yeah, right.
2: One thing, when you said about the Overton window shifting, okay. I had to pull up one of my favorite cartoons. And I don't know if you guys heard of Bloom County. And I know Dennis is probably spitting now. He knows about it. Yeah,
0: no, I had to
2: look at it. The data on it. It's one of my favorite cartoons. And it's May, May 2nd, 1982. Okay. And it was talking about the vanishing liberal. And guess what the topics were back then? Welfare. No nukes. Mm-hmm. Solar power. Gun control. Socialized medicine. Do all of those sound a little familiar? Mm -hmm. That's 39 years ago. And and it's all (laughs) the same thing we're arguing about now. It's 39 years and we're still arguing about all of those things. You're right. We'll take the healthcare topic off. Mm -hmm. It's it's always been there. It's always been a topic and it's always been just something that – It may shift back and forth a little bit, but guess who keeps messing with that window? It's not the U.S. public. It really isn't. It's politicians. It's the media. All of them all of a sudden getting upset about, ooh, can we get Trump on this? Or, ooh, can we get this person on this? Can we do this? Can we get angry about something? And that's what they want is anger because more people watch angry TV. The anger watch and right. that's great for ratings. Cause you can see all now with Trump gone, all the cable news networks are suffering. So anyhow, yeah, continue. Yeah. yeah,
0: you're good. So the, uh, another thing about taking our jobs, uh, the issue is that when you have more workers, you have more jobs and capitalism adjusts to, now we don't have a capitalist society. I get it. But if we, if we did, you know, it adjusts to increase the number of jobs. In fact, the early socialists, including, um, PJ Prudhomme, uh wrote in philosophy of misery, that that's the problem with capitalism is they'll never have enough jobs to supply all the people. And so it's funny that how we talk, how that's kind of seen as differently now, because like we act like we only like there's a zero sum, like we only have so many slots to fill. No, we don't. When you get more people, Believe me, the economy adjusts if you have an excess of workers and they, <laughs> and there's an opportunity to make more money. Somebody's going to provide more work for the workers.
1: What, if- one of my favorite old school economists is Jean Baptiste Say. And he said supply creates its own demand, and yep. labor is a supply like any other. And so if you have an influx of a labor supply, you're going to find new demands for it. And and so I think you know, I think a lot of this is us, you know, I think where we can all agree, as I think we said in the last episode, is in a perfect world scenario, like if we're starting from scratch and and we would probably all agree that, you know, we, we, don't, we don't want any restrictions. We want the open borders. We want complete free flow. It's once the government, you know, introduces these additional variables into the equation, like the, um, you know, welfare benefits. And other things like that, where we start to question, and then it becomes, you know, more of this pragmatic uh, debate on, on how do we kind of work through the government's morass that they've they've set up for us.
0: Yeah, there's, uh, and and just to round out this topic, we only got so many minutes, but I I just I have too much to say, so I'm just going to <clears> fit it in here. It doesn't flow at all, but here we go. Here's here's uh, here's me blocking the Suez Canal. Here I'm just going to throw it in there and hope it fits. Um, <laughs> is there a better way to create an anti-American person than if an American authority rapes your child yeah. or molest your child. When like, Elizabeth. like, here's the thing. We say we're trying to filter out terrorists. We're creating terrorists. This is no different than war. We say we're trying to get rid of the terrorists. So we end up creating more terrorists by what we do. When you, you look at these, <laughs> that's how the military
1: know, industrial the, complex sustains itself. And as, and that's how the prison industrial complex yeah. sustains itself. Eventually, we'll
2: bomb them into loving
0: us. Yeah, and and it's just it's one of those things that you can't say like, well, I'm just really worried about terrorists, and then do something that functionally creates more terrorists. Again, you're allowed to be status. I'm I'm not gonna I'm as much as a huge fan of like no borders as I am. I accept that you can believe in closed borders and still be a libertarian. However, if you do, you have to take responsibility for it. The responsibility has to come into place right now. We say this with the schools all the time. You will give you money. If you show us your finances, if you show us you can handle it responsibly, if you provide proof for your work, it's no different than the borders. You provide proof that you're doing an effective job, that's when you get the money, not first. I am not going to support a system of closed borders until you show me that it can work. And right now, they're showing me the opposite of that. Lastly, I do want to dispel the idea that they're uh, – I know I said, like, oh, they're not sending our best. That's fine. We we want their worst. This is no different, ICE is no different than the Department of Education in the sense that they need to fund themselves. So they will make excuses to fund themselves. If you've not heard of the University of Farmington, I encourage you to look mm-hmm. it up. Yeah. We took these are STEM jobs by the way. This is right it's near a, me. Yeah. Oh, oh, you're familiar with this then. This yeah. is this is nuts. So they make a fake university, they lure people, they lured people, they were in India. They lured yeah. people from India.
1: It was a honeypot operation, essentially, yeah. is what it was. They, they yeah. lured
0: people here to say like, hey, we've got this awesome program. And here's the way it works. We will, you, you pay tuition, you know, you pay your tuition. And what you'll do is you'll get to learn on the job. So what we will do is we'll send you to an employer um, who's in the, and STEM jobs, science, technology, education, and much more stuff. No, <laughs> mechanics. And so what you got is you got these very intelligent people. Right. Who were like, oh, my gosh, this is my chance to come to America. OK, finally. Uh, well, I don't even want to spoil the thing they register on the uh, it's, it's so a legitimate credentialed schools kept track in the Department of Homeland Security and they and they were listed this University of Farmington that was created by ICE, right, was listed as there. They also had a number for employers to call to say, hey, is this person remember member your school? Is your program legitimate? And they had people who would answer the phone and say, yes, we're legitimate. Hire this person. This is on-the-job training. So what they did is they hired these people. They were functional, successful scientists, technicians, engineers, and mechanics. These guys were incredible. And so we brought them over here, pretending to educate them. Now, the yes, did the university ever offer any official credits? No. But what they said is you're going to get credits from on-the-job training. These people who they lured over here believed that. Then what happens? Uh, We disclosed it to the public. It was January 30th of 2019 um, and announced that, hey, yeah, this whole thing was fake. Um, We had some fake recruiters do our job for us. Um, a, a lot, of, it was, um, it's from this, um, a specific area of India where they kind of spoke like, uh, it's the Telugu dialect. I'm not familiar with it. My brother's a linguist. I'm sure he's very ashamed with me right now. Um, but, but you know, they, they were mostly from that area. I think a couple of them were from Palestine. Um, but just said like, okay guys, it was all fake. Now here's the thing. We're keeping the tuition money you paid. You're fired from your jobs. We're arresting you. They actually ended up arresting 161 stu- students if they didn't leave. And ICE was paid huge amounts of money from this operation. Plus, they got to keep the tuition that the kids paid. This is ICE. Here, this is this is this is what Evil our economic system looks like. It is despicable. Okay, this is filthy, obviously. I mean, it's taken to court. And unfortunately, not only did Donald Trump back this up, but Joe Biden has thrown his own lawyers into the mix here and says, yeah, this is this is how it works. And I get this Joe, Joe, Joe Biden himself announced it. They will still be permitted to continue these operations. We are literally creating a problem so that we can fix it so that they can get money to fix the problem that they created. And it's not even a problem. I wish ICE had just shut down and let the kids stay because apparently they were doing a good job at their jobs. They were actually learning on the job training from high, high levels, you give kids a chance and they will prove you right for giving that cha- them a chance more often than not. These were the best and brightest people in the world. And they we want them here. As Americans, you should want these people here. And ICE kicked them out. I have a great solution for that. Yeah.
2: Anytime that there's a press conference, a law enforcement issue, a press conference, all proceeds are immediately given to a, a fund that funds just simply nonprofits in a completely random state. It goes into a fund and that fund then goes and funds it because I don't want those idiots to see a penny of that money. That's evil. They should refund it, yes. And they should stay here, yes. But what does that do for all those legal immigrants that want to come here? Wait a minute. What yeah.
1: that is is that's a particular slice of the greater evil of civil asset forfeiture, and yeah. that's a particularly nefarious nefarious example of it because they're going after people who are particularly unable to combat it and get that money back. Like, and you know, civil asset forfeiture is just a an absolute travesty uh, nationwide. And that you know, that's probably been another great topic for a future episode. But um, the the biggest problem is it, is it j- does away with. all due process because now they're they're reaching back mm-hmm. on old common law statutes that allow them to initiate actions against the property being seized and not against the actual owner of that property meaning the the property is not eligible for due process. So now that you get these cases like the United States versus 240,000 tons of unprocessed beef and all this weird stuff. Uh, And, and it's it. And in this case, again, it's particularly evil because they're going after a very, very, um, you know, uh, vulnerable population of people that they can easily get this money from and steal it and keep it. And they're not going to face almost any challenges probably from it.
2: Yeah, and I loved how that enforcement of those laws changed in a number of states when that funding went into the state oh, general yeah. fund. The minute that changed the state general fund, all of a sudden.
1: Oh, yeah. They don't care. care. They yeah. It. They can't buy their fancy, you know, drug oh, yeah. cor- Corvettes anymore. Uh, and, you know.
2: One bought a popcorn stand thing for <laughs> fundraising, and they bought some other stuff. And then the one guy bought a backhoe so he could dig out his backyard. So. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's hilarious. And I, I, I'm a huge fan of, you know what, every appropriation, every salary that's in the federal government needs to be on an Excel worksheet. And you've got 300 million auditors sitting here. And you Absolutely. go through and just whatever dollars are tied to it, and people will find that. I said, write well, a good script in about 20 minutes prior to find all the dollars that go out the door and say, huh, it's kind of funny. This guy's uh, EIN or social security number keep popping up and look at this that's that's 10 digits
0: so dude i I think obama made the promise right google for government and then eight years later nah nah i'm just kidding about that guys that was that was hilarious wasn't it he's like like, well wait a minute google's uh their
1: their tagline is don't be evil no can't get on board with that (laughs) 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 must be
0: evil Uh, anyhow guys the this wasn't even the first fake university they have done this before um there there was another one uh i think in connecticut or something it's just nuts stuff that they they did and and like i said they're going to continue to do it because it makes them money and it validates their existence it is wrong if you support immigration controls fix your stuff and then come and talk to me that that's just how it works anyhow Thank you guys for your inputs on that one. I do appreciate mm. it. I think uh, I look forward to the day that when immigration is celebrated, no longer uh, feared. I, I <laughs> in look this
2: forward to day way. where it's a non-issue or it's like what we're yeah. talking about now with gay, with, with accepting yeah. marriage and stuff. I, yeah. Of course there's going to be idiots out there. They're going to be nuts about it. when we get to it, go, oh, okay, cool. You're here. Yeah. You need something to do? I, I got some work you can do or, oh, wow. I want, you're, you're like really smart. I need to get you in front of my boss. Cause we need smart people like you at our company.
0: Yeah, what, it's
1: the last thing I might say on it is I like to ahead. take things to the ridiculous and take it the other way and cry, try to like take it to the point of the ridiculous. So let's start enforcing interstate borders and, <laughs> and so you start making arguments well, for that and then allow people to pick it apart themselves and then turn it around on them and say, well, wait a minute. Isn't that true between say anybody in Texas and Mexico? Uh, w- isn't that equally true between Texas and Oklahoma? So anyway, just an interesting thought exercise that uh, I might encourage people to to think through a little bit. I'm
2: covering up, but you know they're going to try to do this with this lovely COVID card that we. Oh all yeah, have, you know <laughs> people. I I have never seen. I, I have a couple friends that live in New York, and I've never seen them so mad at this whole. You ain't. I got to put an app on my phone for the government to allow a private actor to let me into their building because to make sure I'm vaccinated. It's like, Oh, deal. Laughed out of court. I just want to be, I just want to be in the gallery as the the appeals court just looks at it, just goes, are you that nuts?
0: (laughs) Cool. Well, I'm going to give you peace of my mind. I know we went a little overtime on that, but thankfully I think my topic this time won't take too long at all. Um, it's regarding the newest gun control. Um, Jen Saki has said that she is, that, uh, Joe Biden is ready to use an executive order to do it. Who opened this door? That's Donald Trump. And they mm-hmm. said it when Donald Trump was issuing the executive orders, they said, Hey, look what you are doing right now can be used to do gun control later. Do you understand? And they, Oh, no, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah, it happened. All right. We've got we've got more and more of these regulations now. And it looks like that Joe Biden is poised because he will not. It does not appear even though he does. Oh, well, he does. But the Democrats control the Senate and the House. It appears that there are enough Democrats who recognize that gun control is a racist, evil and bad idea. And there they will not agree to it. And so therefore, his only area of recourse is the executive order. Gun control is not one. Now, here's the thing: I am not a big gun enthusiast. In fact, quite the opposite. I'm I have embraced fully the idea of Tolstoyan pacifism. I don't like the. I don't believe we can beat our aggressors with force. Uh, I am not a boogaloo guy because of it. I don't hate the people who are. I understand that when you are oppressed, it is your right to stand up and fight back. Frankly, I believe we would lose and I don't believe I don't see ourselves having the numbers anytime soon. And so therefore I see it as a change of tactics to be peaceful to people who don't deserve it. That being said, I understand that that is a concept that requires a lot of beliefs and philosophies that are not natural to man and I can't expect other people to have them. And so therefore I do believe that people should be able to defend themselves and feel free to own whatever they feel they need to own in order to defend themselves or even to, to be the aggressors and to say, well, no, it's not even being aggressive to go on the active defense and line the state Capitol buildings with people with guns to say, Hey, listen, if you hurt me, we can hurt you back. Okay. You are being the aggressor. This is what we are capable of. This is how gun control legislation started. because, black people with guns scared white people. And that is, things got worse from there. I guess you can't even say it started from there because there's been a few, you know, clips and, you know, people aren't allowed to have, (laughs) allowed to own nuclear arms and things like that. But there are things where I just say, this is where it started. It was racist when it started because white people would do the same thing they would form lynch mobs. They had guns, then no legislation. All of a sudden a black group has guns says, Hey, you are treading all over us and you are being, you know, (laughs) what you are doing is being racist. And then all of a sudden the government says like, all right, well, maybe you can't open carry anymore. That's, that's not quite right. And it's all gone downhill from there. Allowing somebody else to control your means of self-defense or whatever armaments that you feel you need to protect your family when those people are the aggressors, what do you think they are going to opt for? They are always going to opt for protecting themselves and not you. Because guess what? Whenever they're threatened, do you think they, whenever a gunman threatens them, do you think they're saying like, hey, maybe we should make the White House a gun-free zone. Maybe we should make my, you know, my Congress building a gun-free zone. Nobody's allowed to have gun. No, (laughs) They, they bring people with guns in there. To have them as quickly as they can. Um, I Chicago, the situation there breaks my heart. I've heard some. I, I they have available some police tapes of people screaming and crying who applied for a personal firearm. if somebody breaks in their house and they're on the phone with nine one one, and you find out that they got murdered the next morning, and they the their local governments did not did not allow them to have a handgun. It's one of those things where they applied, and I believe it was unconstitutional that they could decline them, but they get to choose when they approve them, which can be never. And they can sit on the desk and have your application sitting there for forever. Um, it is harrowing to hear these phone calls of people that end up getting murdered when they had applied for self-defense, which they shouldn't have to do, and then they get killed. And who is this going to punish? If you believe that this is going to punish rich white billionaires for having security guards with guns, you're out of your mind. Like all laws, these are targeted I mean, we shouldn't be surprised at any point that Mr. I don't want my kids to grow up in a racial jungle. Joe Biden is pushing for legislation that is going to accidentally punish a bunch of poor black people who want to defend themselves. This is, and, and I'm aware I'm making generalities. There's poor white people who deserve guns too. I'm I'm just, the reason I'm using these words is because he, these are the people he's pretending to represent and he is doing a piss poor job of it. Um, he is intentionally doing a piss poor job of it because Let's stop giving our politicians an excuse for being stupid. Okay. They're all geniuses. They are all literally geniuses. They've all had higher education. They've all, there's no website. The Most of them are psychopaths, too. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> th- this is exactly, there's no website you're going to direct to them with new information on this su- subject that they haven't seen before. It's not for your protection. This is designed to make you unprotected, to give them more power, to consolidate their power. It should be no surprise that Joe Biden has become worse since giving getting the throne of unlimited power duh everybody does i would i mean it's just you do not want anybody in a throne with near limitless power um that's about all i gotta say about it um if you guys have some comments on it i just i I am not big on gun control because of the way it's implemented and um anytime they say it's common uh, sense it's their common sense and that's not so common
1: well, I think and it, it's a, you know, pr- quite possibly the most perfect example of selective enforcement going back to our earlier conversation. And to your point, Hody, you know, they always talk about, you know, it wasn't until the Black Panthers uh, open carried their guns on the steps of the California State House that, you know, they really started talking about, you know, passing open anti-open carry legislation in California and, and things like that. And I I think, um, you know, one uh, libertarian thinker that I'm, I, I, quite like um, his writing is Adam Bates um, and he he works for the Cato Institute. And uh, um, he, I think, put out when requested on Facebook, somebody asked him, like, what is your best sort of elevator pitch for gun rights? And um, he he basically said, you have to take a very pragmatic look at the history of gun controls and just recognize that gun controls will never be tolerated against um, white gun owners in, you know, in, in, it's always and everywhere used to basically disarm and oftentimes, you know, uh, imprison people of color and 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 whatnot, and ultimately, you know, disproportionately um, actually enforced against them. But at the end of the day, kind of to your earlier point, Hodi. Um, it's, it's really a have-and-have-not have situation because it's just telling people, you can't commit your own violence anymore. You have to outsource your violence. Now, if if you everybody can outsource their violence to the police who are slow, you know they might take 15, 20 minutes to get to your house, if that, if they ever come at all. Um, or you can hire private bodyguards who can get special licenses and have semi-automatic and even automatic weapons in some cases. Um, if they also happen to be a cop who moonlights as a security guard, and and so you create this have and have not situation like you described that is a perfect playing out Oh, of the law of unintended consequences are, you know, what did we intend? Well, we intended to have less mass shootings and less guns on the streets and blah, blah, blah. Well, what was the actual realization and consequences? Less people of, of low means were, are able to protect themselves now. And the the people who always had means have the same level of protection they've always had. Um, and really, you've not really done much by way of... and. What's going to happen now? We're not going to have mass shootings. We're going to have mass stabbings, like in the UK. Um, we're going to have mass walrus tusk, you know, stabbings and things like that. Like they have in the UK, or narwhal tusks, like that. I don't know if you guys saw that on the on the Tower of London Bridge and stuff. Like, I mean, it it, it as people, I've I've other people have said, the intent comes first the acquisition of the tool comes second. And and whatever that tool is, whether it's a gun or whatever, we, we really should be nipping it in the bud maybe by figuring out why did all these people have these just seemingly outrageous, violent, and you know, intents to just go out and like there's a there's a mental illness problem here maybe we should be talking about. Um, so I, I'm right there with you. I, I definitely have a big problem with any kind of gun control restrictions because, and, you know, as Adam Bates said uh, going back to to citing him. It's like any good, even progressive or liberal worth their salt needs to look at the facts and basically uh, renounce any kind of gun control measures because all you're doing are hurting the most vulnerable.
0: Yeah. So. There's Brian, I'm, I, I promise I'm gonna give you a turn. I just, I, I forgot one more thing. Jen Psaki, when pressed about it in the White House press conference said the bill that he's enacting would not have stopped these latest shootings. Yeah. Right. I mean, she even said it. It's yeah. it's not related to that. We just have to do something about gun control. It wouldn't have stopped what happened. In fact, could even go further it's to prevent gun control, control theater. Her. Right. It's just uh, right. Gun control theater, and, and it's like the fact that we even know that we're proposing something that won't stop mass shootings, and they're doing it anyway. That they could. I just sorry. Go ahead, Brian.
2: No, so I I kind of hope that COVID would have put this to rest because I can tell you this. <laughs> beginning of COVID, I, I, I work out of Southern California. And, you know, I live here in Indiana, and, and I have a lot of friends out there who were very lukewarm on gun control laws. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, we need to get this out of their hands right up until COVID. <laughs> then all of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute, there's going to be all sorts of weird people going around, and a lot of people all of a sudden got very interested. What's the process to get a firearm, mm-hmm. a handgun? I mean I gotta wait? Yeah, you gotta wait. You gotta go through a process.
1: I can't buy it online? What? <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> I it was easier to buy a gun than it was to register to vote. You know, I no, gotta, gotta go through this whole process. But I'm proud that those people went through, got their permits, got their guns, and went and got training because that was the one thing I pushed with all of them. I said, you know what, you can get it, but please go get properly trained. Go pay the $300 for somebody, not some, hey,
1: dude, you know, I'll do it
2: for 20 bucks. Go down to the proper shop get say, look, I'm new at this. I don't know what I'm doing, but I want to know this better. And they all got training, and they've all done very well, and they're all now protecting themselves. So suddenly at least that argument with, at least in my circle, which is, of course, not your, you know, not people that can't defend themselves. It's the people that now can and have income to be able to afford if they had to security and stuff like that but they don't have to now. And that's the best argument I can make is say, wait a minute, you can do this, but this person can't. You tell me why your life is more important. And yes, of course, to you, it's more important. But you tell me in general why your life is more important than these people's lives. And who's the number one actor of violence against the the common public? And it's the government. Okay. And, And this gets back to your point, Jordan, where you said, or I think it was Hody who said, well, we don't have the numbers. How many let take, let's take a little number here of math here. How many registered hunters, hunters, are there in the state of Wisconsin? It's around five, six million. I think I think it's a, it's a, it's a it's definitely. I think oh. four six million gun owners. That's the biggest army on the planet <laughs> right there. And we haven't touched Colorado. We haven't touched Idaho, we haven't touched Montana. We haven't even touched California. So, when people go, wait a minute, you know, the government could all do this. Yeah, sure, they could nuke us into
1: oblivion. A rifle hiding behind every blade of grass, as I believe one of the uh, Japanese generals said. Yeah. Yeah,
2: (laughs) Japanese were like, you're you're not invading the US. All of (laughs) a sudden, you've done two things. Number one, everyone with a gun is going to be out for you. But here's the other thing that we did. What happened when they banned the Dr. Seuss books? And I know I'm going kind of off off field on this. What happened to it? They got very interesting to a lot of people who all of a sudden heard that it was banned. And a lot of people started buying them. Go try buying five uh, 223 ammo right now, 5.56 ammo. Go buy 22. Go out there and see how much that stuff costs. I got news for you. It's very expensive. Why? Supply and demand. Why is, why is the price so high? Because the demand is insane. Because people are hearing this and going, wait, Biden's going to try to edge through a... Uh, Executive order banning AR-15. Do you know how many people are going to turn in an AR-15? Right. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're going to go house to house? Okay. You're going to send this to local cops and say, go enforce federal law, a federal order, which will probably get overturned in a, in a very friendly district court in about, oh, two weeks or less. There's no way it's going to be enforced. This is all. That's for- it.
1: That That's the reality of it. It's like these people are not going to give up those guns. So like you're t- I mean, you're turning a bunch of people into criminals who will have all of a sudden lost those guns in tragic boating accidents. That, you know, <laughs> but well, they're not really going anywhere. See.
2: <laughs> that's the thing about it is that all of a sudden now, what happens the next time that you try to do something legit? You know, you try to do something. I news for you. A lot of people are going to call you out on your BS. And of course we have a short memory and that's just the, that gets the media and general outrage complex that we kind of fire up. And, and that's the whole thing is that these people are going to be like, wait a minute. I remember you tried doing this. You knew it was never going to fly. You knew it was all political theater. You went through all of this. You're going to have it selectively enforced on somebody who's legitimately trying to protect themselves. And you're going to try to throw them in jail for even longer on some law and order type of BS, you know, to, to, to make yourself feel better and feel safer when really it does none of the above if Anything It makes things worse. And all of a sudden now you've just wasted. Sometimes a legitimate topic that you can talk about and say, Hey, look, let's find the real reasons behind it as opposed to black, scary guns are scary and we need to ban black, scary guns. And Oh, by the way, there's a few other black, scary things that these people want to ban as well. So, yeah,
0: yeah there's, um, uh, I Brian, to your point, I, I have been very proud of seeing uh, the left come around on this issue. I mean, frankly, like you said during COVID, I, uh, that's a great point. I wish I thought of it myself. But yeah, like to see that transformation. Because if you would have told me two years ago, the left was going to come Bernie around. Sanders on it, enough credit. Yeah, <laughs> if we don't, if if you were to told me two years ago the left was going to come around and, and on gun control, I would have laughed in your face, oh, and yeah. oh. and like to see it now, like you said, like like general lefties are being like, yeah, no, we need guns. In fact, um, the, there was a poll about how Joe Biden's doing, and the one the only thing the Democrats said he's doing doing well is handling the COVID crisis, and everything else was poor, and that included his ideas about the executive order with uh, gun control. And I was surprised to see that among Democrats, you know, you, I mean, obviously, you know, the Republicans are going to give him zeros for everything, but you know, to see the Democrats say like more, were are opposed to him doing that than for it. I was like, wow, this is really, this is a different America. Um, that's peace of my mind. Brian, give us a piece of your mind, buddy.
2: Oh, it's going to be fun. Gonna, and we're going to live up to the title. I think on this one,
0: oh. here we go.
2: The real thing I really get bothered with is when we try to hold our current societal norms to historic, historic issues. Um, You know, Thomas Jefferson right now is in the process of being quote unquote canceled because he had sex with his slave and there was an inappropriate relationship. (laughs) Bill Clinton. Um, and, And he's still embraced and all these other people, FDR, all these other people, it's all conveniently forgotten for them. It's, Horrible guy, but this is the that gets to this point of like we tend to think of ourselves as the pinnacle of humanity right now. We tend to think, oh, we're the smartest, we're we're the awesomest things. Like that. The reality is, the people back in the 1800s were just as smart as we were. They didn't have the technology, they didn't have the ability to you know get out of an agrarian lifestyle until the evil industrial revolution came along. And that's kind of the thing that I kind of sit here with this, and it's like, well, we're going to hold these standards. To, to our current standards to pass things. Now, yes, there are some terrible people out there. Christopher Columbus has been proven to be a terrible person. But then again, most of the people in that time frame were terrible people in our mindset. We can still celebrate some of the good things they did. We can point out all the atrocities they committed. But that gets us to today. I, I really wanted to ask the question of what atrocities are we committing today that our grandchildren and great-grandchildren are going to look at us And say, like, I want nothing to do with that person. And I think there's a few out there that we do. We have pets and we eat meat. And I want you to think about in a few years, in a decade or two, when we maybe start getting lab meat or things like that, or um, that's going to really start getting frowned upon. And I want you to think about right now. You think about your pets. You think about the the smoker that we were talking about, Hody, and stuff like that. Are we going to be held to that level? Of you know, we're supposed to be that advanced, that we're supposed to be that forward-thinking when some when there are no other viable options at the time. And then that's kind of where it gets back to it, is that it's really tough for me to sit there and hold Thomas Jefferson to a level of social. And you know, I can still say, yeah, he did some pretty terrible things, but he also did some pretty good things. I'm not saying that he is the savior of then the founding father. You know, that we have to revere them and stuff like that. They had good ideas. They're good ideas that have played out well over time. They had some bad ideas in there too. And those bad ideas were kind of pushed aside eventually. It's kind of like the Bible. There's a lot of nasty stuff in the Bible that we've kind of yeah, we've kind of shuffled off. But that's the thing is that society grows. And if you're gonna sit there and hold the people that are part of that, part of that growth back then to, to today's standards. And cancel their thoughts and saying we can't believe anything this guy, do anything this guy said, because what he did back here with X, Y, and Z was terrible when it was a societal norm. And that's my point about it, is that when we sit there and try to hold him to this high level of our current society, we're really just doing a disservice to ourselves. We're better off understanding the situation of what it was and how we have grown or how we can avoid that from happening again.
0: Yeah, I would say, um, you know, it's meat, eating meat's the one that comes to mind for me too. It's it's sad that you mentioned it because you took it right out of my sails. I do feel like there's a time when lab-grown meat's just going to be what we do. I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to feed them. I mean, even just from an economic perspective, you grow it and you don't have to, you know, constantly feed it, keep it alive, keep it, in, you know, in good conditions, everything like that. Plus, uh, I believe it's the number one contributing factor to global warming, which would be my other factor that I think of is that, we're probably going to finally legalize energies that don't just dump, you know, uh, carbon outputs into the atmosphere. They're
2: legal already. It's just that you right. got the word nuclear in front of it and people go running and, you know, want to come. From, <laughs> ah! <You
0: know? laughs> well, there's certain like uh, mm-hmm. you need authorization for some. I, I don't believe I'm allowed to build a nuclear reactor in my basement. Yes, you are. There's, I am. Oh, okay. Well, uh, never mind. You know what?
1: I stand. Right, it's all about there. the ownership right. of the materials that are regulated. But if you can uh, own uh, the right materials, you can build a reactor. Usually,
2: if I get if I get enough uranium ore, and of course, that would be an insane amount. Or I could build my own fusion reactor. You can actually build legally your own fusion reactor inside your own inside your basement. Now, yeah. it's not going to be very efficient <laughs> right now. Technology's not there. But you could also use the neutrons of it to breed your own plutonium. That's where it starts getting interesting. Wow. Yeah.
0: I learn something new every day. That's fascinating. The department of energy box on your door. Yeah. Okay. So like the so, one of the things that I think about is George Washington. And he said that when reviewing the incidents of my administration, I'm unconscious of intentional error. I'm nevertheless too sensible of my defects to not think it probable that I've committed many errors. And I, I think about that a lot because I think that, we just as ourselves we're saying like, I don't even know the mistakes that I'm making. I don't even know the sins that I'm committing that our generations from now are going to look forward and just be like, oh my gosh. And I think you do have a good point that we can't just cancel the entirety of people. I do think there are times when we do need to look at things and say, I, I used to have... To say I was obsessed with the Founding Fathers might be putting it like mildly. Like I've read like all the notes from like the Pennsylvania Convention and or the Holy Philadelphia God. Convention. And, and I just like I, I I guess you could say I like fetishized them pretty much. I, I loved the Founding Fathers and I don't hate them now, but I do recognize them as more human than they were before. But there are things like I think when I look back, I especially look on the abolitionists and just wish that they had held a little bit stronger to say, like, no 0% chance I'm going to get along with you guys if we treat people as a commodity. And I understand the pressures that they were working under, but it's not your rights that you gave away. You gave away somebody else's rights. I understand giving away your own rights. You bring your own rights to the negotiating table and say, I'll sacrifice this, that, and the other. Um but we can't. You're right. We can't trash everything that they did, and we should still be able to take intellect from them in despite despite of those things. That that said, I, I do think there is some room for saying like, "Hey, here's like the mistakes they made. Here's how we learn. Here's how we grow from them." I don't. I I think it turns into idolatry a little bit, and people do this. I mean, it's, I, we're libertarians. We got superheroes. I didn't want to believe certain things about Rothbard and Ayn Rand and like, like Milton Friedman, some really cool people like that. I like, I take their essays and I looked up to them in their books and I'm just like, isn't this super cool? And they're like, yeah. Did you know Ayn Rand like really hated anarchists and like, she, like, was kind of a big statist when it came to, like, protecting the economy and stuff. And I was like, no, you kill me. I don't want to think about these things. But I think it's important that we look back on those things and say, like, okay, you know what? I can still appreciate that you took a step forward, you know, to say, like, hey, you know what? Thank you for moving. You weren't ready. You weren't ready for abolition. You know what I mean? But I appreciate that you took a step forward and saying, hey, no taxes. We've taken a little bit of a step backwards since then. But, you know, I appreciate at least like, hey, that was a revolutionary idea to be like, hey, you can't just leave your soldiers here. You can't just tax us whenever you want we deserve representation. You know, even for me, you know, and I might be an anarchist, but, and even if I don't love democracy, I at least recognize it as a step forward above monarchy, you know? And I'm like, okay, these are necessary steps that happen as humans evolve and we learn and we grow. And I do look at things that we do now that maybe are wrong. And I'm still smoking meats in hopes that, because I still recognize we're omnivores and the technology is not there yet. I don't have access to lab grown meats yet. So I just, I'm sorry. Future generations, if you hear this, I'm sorry. And like, it's okay to bash me for eating meat and not holding my own and eating turnips. I get it. Like I, I I, would, I will feel bad when you get to that place. You know what I mean? And maybe I should have held stronger. And I think that's okay to bash me for that and to to, to believe those things. I don't know. I, I, I get I what think, you're saying. Yeah, my my
1: only thing I I would add to that, and this is a little bit of a, a devil's advocate sort of thing, but is that um, while certainly we have to understand that you know, norms change, and that they they uh, the, you know they came to some personal realizations themselves, and they did a lot of great things and accomplished great things that we shouldn't throw out wholesale, like we shouldn't quote unquote cancel them entirely and try to like scrub them from history because they did some other things but we can't take it the other way either and I think as a country we've been kind of guilty of that which is to whitewash them and to basically say you know these guys were untouchable heroes you know make them into these superheroes to your point um, Hody and, and the problem when we do that is it trivializes the work of their contemporaries who did know what was right and were fighting for it so like you think about all the people during the the era of the founding fathers like there's this great story of this little um uh, he was a, a, a little person named Benjamin Lay and he was a Quaker. And um, he would he would uh, go into uh, town hall meetings in the mid to late 1700s and just like completely disrupt them and like, like call out people for the evils of human owning and like all of this stuff. And like you had these people that were passionately fighting for it and like saw the evil for what it was. And when you just say, oh, they were a product of their times and you're kind of writing off that, no, there were a lot of people in that time who were calling it out for what it is. And and so I wouldn't say, you know, let's 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 race them from history either. I wouldn't. But I would just encourage us. Let's make sure we still mention that and say, right. yeah, he was a slave owner. And yeah, like that was there. Even at the time, there were some people saying that that was not such a good thing to do. And there is some moral culpability there on Jefferson's part.
2: So. I just had to Google Benjamin Lay. The only picture they have is a really terrible painting. Oh, of yeah, him. yeah, it's, it's not.
1: I think if I remember, he was a he was a friend of uh, um, uh, Benjamin Franklin actually, and that painting was commissioned by him. I think that one that's the most famous. So yeah, was,
2: no. was Franklin? Well, we knew Franklin was drunk most of the time. <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> Close enough.
0: You know, it's funny, this is something, and I guess, Brian, because you bring it up, I'm going to bring it up just, you know, because we got a little extra time before we get to Jordan here, but I want to talk about, I I think it's interesting how not everybody receives the same education in this country, because, Mm. like, there is a lot of, and that's okay, like, I actually prefer diversified education, that's great, I wish wish there was less of a singularized curriculum, but I think it's funny because I was only raised kind of knowing that these people were slave owners and racists and bad people, and, like, it wasn't until later in life that I was like, Oh, George Washington was a president at one point. Cool. I only knew he was a slave owner and had, you know, you slaves teeth and stuff like that, you know? And I was like, Oh, okay. And like, it's, it's interesting that like, people are just on different wavelengths with it. So like the reason I bring this up is because and you polarized
1: can, extremes
0: at times. Right. And because yeah. like your experience might be completely different from somebody else's and like, it's good. That's, that's why we talk about these things to kind of share the experiences and, and talk about them. I know for me, Charlottesville was a big awakening. Cause I was like, dude, if you held a KKK rally, like anywhere, like you'd get shot, you get, you would get literally murdered. Like if you pull up and like, we can tell the out of towners, because if you pull up and sit and I used to, I used to do restaurant management, but if you were in an out of town and you had a Confederate flag on your car, your car was going to be keyed, probably window busted, whatever. Like, that's just the nature of, like, this area. We will maybe kill you if you are, like, are Confederate, right? Like, and so, like, and, and it's weird because, like, it's Utah, and I know we're, like, kind of Republicans here, but, like, there there's not, like, a... You'll still get beat up. Like, I'm I'm like, I'm sorry, it's just the way it is. You know, a lot of those videos with people getting the MAGA hat taken off and beat up and stuff, like that's that's more of my experience of like knowing like white people are kind of bad and evil. And like I kind of actually had to come around on some of the white people actually made some good contributions as well. And a lot of people that come from my area hear these stories being like, why did we make, why did we idolize these, you know, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson? And I'm like, where did you grow up? Like, all well, I've only known that they were bad people. I had no idea they made any contributions at all. Oh, you know, yeah. I kind of do that in my own time. Sorry, go oh, ahead, Brian. I,
2: I'm just going to interrupt here. I'm sorry. But the, I grew up in a neighborhood that was um, significantly a, a diverse ethnic background. But one of the people that they held up for a long time was Christopher Columbus. And trust me, I remember Columbus Day. <sighs> and because I grew up in, in – there were uh, plenty of Italian-Americans in our neighborhood. It was a big day of celebration. So – uh, along with that and Casimir Pulaski, which, of course, none of you, uh, uh, I mean, you may be familiar with it, but we actually have a Pulaski Day in, in, in Illinois because it's a large Polish population.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Detroit is a large one, too. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. So,
1: yeah this is my of, first time hearing
0: his name. I'm going to find out yeah. so many things.
1: Yeah.
2: So, but the thing is, this it's amazing to see the difference in that and that you, you grew up that, but I also get a little cringy when I sit there and say, we're going to beat somebody up because they have something, they're wearing something or they're doing something. That goes kind of totally anti-libertarian. I, I don't care if you're wearing, if you're in this gets back to our previous discussion. I don't care if you're wearing a friggin' KKK, you know, the the, the sheet and all that other stuff. I, I want to be, I want to be a Daryl Davis. I don't want to be a mob beating you up because I think that you have this belief. Which, if you're wearing the the hood and everything, probably pretty safe. Um, but I want to be the Daryl Davis to start the conversation. I want to be that person that sits there and says. You know that that may not be the greatest thing why do you why do you hold that belief? Well, my father did my, fam- my family did I had a bad experience whatever it is let's talk let's not fashion yeah. car windows and ruin cars because this is what happened. That guy's going to pull out a gun to his
1: car and he's going to (laughs) shoot. So so, uh, since you brought up Columbus Day, I'm going to go ahead and recommend one of my favorite uh, books, um, A Renegade History of the United States by Thaddeus Russell. I don't know if he necessarily considers himself a libertarian, but he definitely holds a lot of libertarian-leaning beliefs. Um, But he talks about the history of Columbus Day in that book. um, And it is one of the most famous examples of revisionist history where there was basically a lot of Italians as part of an anti uh, Italian defamation league who were looking for a way to get Americans to think of Italians as more American and embrace them more and basically look back and saw it's Columbus as a way to kind of do this even though arguably like Amerigo Vespucci you know discovered America and that's why it's called America and you know all sorts of other stuff but, so in any case uh, I, if you want a really good thorough accounting of that and like how the perception of Columbus changed over the course of american history um definitely there's a whole i think a whole chapter dedicated to it in uh, renegade history of the united states <clears throat>
0: Yeah, I think Thaddeus Russell coined the phrase uh, ultra-revisionist, because there's revisionist mm-hmm. And then there was, like, you know, we were looking at a revisionist history, and then we saw the history, and then we revised it again to be like, let's make right. it even cooler, right? So, like, right. Ultra revisionist. All right, well, Jordan, I'm going to let you give a piece of your mind, and I'm going to do you a favor, my friend. I'm going to let you swear as much as you want, because from what I understand... <laughs> so, if you have kids in the room, go ahead. Thanks for listening, uh... <laughs> Uh, you might want to put it on headphones before uh, the adults are talking. I'm just kidding. Go ahead, no, Jordan.
1: Fine. I, I tend to self censor pretty well. I, I'm a good example of the free market in action and not needing, you know, censors. So uh, I'll keep I'll keep that. So my my topic, my piece of my mind, is a bit perhaps flippant and uh, first world problemy compared to some of the stuff we've been talking about. But I think it's a nonetheless a, a, a problem that we need to talk about, and that is. Um, the nature of tax credits and the the problem that they represent from a, um, a a social engineering perspective and and how I have now become the victim of one such uh, credit situation. Um, and so if you look in in history, a lot of times um, you'll see a word used or economic history, I should say, to describe people who, Try to get money out of the government versus trying to say make things of value and sell them. Um, and that term, a lot of times, is, that's used as rent seeking. Um, and rent seeking, a lot of times though, has a more specific connotation, which is people that try to hurt themselves to look worse to actually get more money out of the government. And there was like a famous story of an economist, uh, I forget which, coming back from World War Two, who talked about like when he was in the Philippines post-war, um, he would go and he would see all the beggars. On the shore, and they would all have they would cut their own faces to look worse than the person next to them to elicit the biggest handout. And so that was like the the example that he would often use for rent seeking. And you see this time and time again amongst you know companies that will like you know hurt themselves or hurt their balance sheet to get a big you know boost from the government. Um, but a more general term that I like to use uh, it was actually coined by a guy who's one of my professors in college, uh, Dr. Burton Folsom. Um, it's called political entrepreneurship. Um, and so he uses that to differentiate from market entrepreneurship. So the idea of market entrepreneurship is, you know, I have a good or service, I'm going to offer it to you at a price, we're going to have a free exchange, and we're going to both going to get, you know, a mutually beneficial exchange out of this thing. Political entrepreneurship is basically seeking out the government's coffers, and that being your major source of money, and that you create a business that is basically built up around, you know, some sort of s- siphoning of money off the government. And right now, a huge place where that's taking uh, place is in the solar industry, because there is a form 5695 personal home energy credit. Um, and I just happen to know way more about the US tax code than I ever wanted to know. And so like, I I, I know there's a lot of people who don't know a lot about this, and they get swindled when, when talked to about this sort of thing. Um, because What basically the law says right now is that 26% of every dollar that you spend associated with the installation of solar panels or equipment, uh, whether that's the equipment or labor associated with it, you can claim as what's called a non-refundable tax credit on your income taxes. Now, a lot of people uh, don't know the difference between what's called a non-refundable and a refundable credit. And this is a very key distinction here uh, for this, because this, this is what's called a non-refundable credit. Um, and what that means is that the only way you can get money back from it is if you paid money in to begin with and withholding, and now are just not having to pay a portion of that tax that you originally thought you would have to pay and you're getting that withholding back. A refundable credit is like the earned income credit. And what that is, is that somebody, even if you didn't actually um, make any money or in the earned income credits case, you actually had to actually have earned income, uh, but you didn't have to pay any tax in and you can actually get more money back in a refund than you actually paid in in withholding taxes. And that's what makes it a refundable credit. Well, the problem that this creates is that it creates an incentive to for co- a big company to come up. And one of which I won't mention their name because I'm likely to be kicking off a class action lawsuit against them here before too long. Uh, it will spring up and basically farm these credits out of individuals that don't know better. And so they'll go to individuals and they'll sign up agreements. And in my case, I knew this part of it going into it. And I knew the nature of the credit. I knew that I had enough taxable income to be able to get the full extent of that non-refundable credit. A lot of these salespeople will go in and position it like it's a refundable credit, though. And they'll basically make these people think that they can get this huge credit back from the government, even if they didn't necessarily pay in a bunch in withholding and stuff. And so they end up really screwed because the other thing that's happening is a lot of these companies are way overextending their infrastructure because they're getting just new customers like gangbusters with the promise of this credit. They overextend their infrastructure and then they can't get functional systems delivered to people, which is the case in my case. And so you have people who basically were incented and empowered by the government to create an otherwise unsustainable business model. And, and for this reason, the, again law of unintended consequences the intention going into this was hey let's make it easier for homeowners to use alternative energy sources like solar and let's make less pollution you know using conventional energy sources sounds like a great intention but the actuality of it and what and what ultimately plays out is you get a bunch of these companies that create a bunch of um you know this product. They sort of missell it into a bunch of people, and then a bunch of people like myself end up in situations where they're still paying a monopolistic energy provider, and then they have a non-functional system that they're paying payments on. Uh, that and then they're effectively double paying for energy. Um, I'm, you know, working through various channels to get my solution uh, to my scenario. But I think the biggest, uh, you know, advice I would give to anybody is you know the solar situation right now it is a bit of a prisoners dilemma because if you can get like a good installer and get a good system like it is a kind of a good deal like if if you can take advantage and get that money back from the government while you can um but the flip side of it is when it doesn't get installed correctly when it doesn't work out it becomes the broken window fallacy in the sense that that was money yes like people will argue well it's getting people to buy solar they're buying american it's boosting the economy well that's money that I would have spent on something else that works if it and not these broken solar panels, you know. So I, I just think that um it, something to be aware of is that as long as we have an income tax system, the tax credits that go along with that are going to be inherently um socially engineering by nature and that's what all of them are essentially and they all reflect some special interest somewhere who got that in there and in this case it was the solar companies who know they'd sell a heck of a lot more materials if they had the government to subsidize part of that. And so um, it, I think when you see some of these big, um, uh, you know, uh, financial trends and things like that, home buying is another one. I mean, buying a home is one of the best tax shelters you can possibly get. But a lot of these are bubbles that are getting created artificially by the government through these you know, social engineering programs that just so happen to be in the form of a tax credit. And um, you end up in these scenarios like me, where, you know, you end up in a in a net worse off scenario for society where I'm paying more for energy. I'm not really getting the value out of it. Whereas had the government not meddled in it in the first place, somebody else would have created something of value and I would have used my money to buy that instead. And um, so just for what it's worth for anybody who's looking at a similar situation, I know Brian has made some uh, uh, gestures to, to, to maybe dissuade anybody from considering this sort of thing, but um, I, I would just say find some local references. I didn't do that when I made my, Purchase and I—that's my biggest regret—is um, find some local people who are going to be serviced by the same installer. Talk to them after they've actually had an operational system, and then make your decision. Um, so that's my my learning that I'll pass on to everybody else.
2: <laughs> you know, the funny thing about it is this—the uh, thing was yesterday. I was driving home, and I've started to see the solar thing park out here in Indiana. And it's kind of funny because Indiana is by like one of the worst places for
0: solar <laughs>
2: planet. But the one thing I always notice about this, and I work in sales, so you can always tell a really sh- terrible company. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Nice if self-censorship. If a yes.
2: Picture of a do- dumpy looking guy on their advertising. Like, Hey, I'm Earl Shive. And for 99.95 I'll install. If there's a picture of a dumpy guy that is not at all attractive <laughs> and frankly would kind of scare you in general public. And he's the base <laughs> of that company turn turn around walk the other way because that's what I saw plastic on the side of this car. It's like da, 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 solar and then the guy just in there like uh,
1: that may or may not be the company in question for what it's
2: worth. <laughs> <laughs> you know if I'm in sales, the last thing I'm to to sit there and have a picture of my and go
1: Yeah, I I may have created a satire site viciously attacking him as a CEO. Uh, I won't give the URL, but I think that lent to my uh, service date getting moved up last time. (laughs) So,
0: (laughs) you know, now that this is a problem that, like, I appreciate you sharing it with me, but now that I know I can build a nuclear reactor in my (sighs) room, I I don't think I'm going to have to deal with this anymore. Right, right.
2: Before we start that, okay, let's get together and have a little discussion on the actual value of doing it.
0: (laughs) You know, I mean, you mentioned some sketchy people coming over. I mean, these guys, this guy calls himself Mr. Hamas. H- H- Hamas he wants to help me install it, I don't know right, yeah but yeah, yeah, oh Hamas, that's it. He wants to help me install it yeah, and uh it's it's gonna be great. I wouldn't worry about anything sketchy going on no i uh it's it's bad, you know it's it, i can even bring income tax full circle around to closed borders, closed borders is heavily grounded in an income tax, yeah uh historically actually the yeah. um once again this is this actually contributed to like world war one. Um and seizing uh of Alsace Lorraine and uh, other other terrible things that have kicked off massive global conflicts because what happens is when you have a tax that is just based on sales who cares where they come from I don't care taxes just based on sales whatever if you you know if you have taxes based on importation that's kind of how we started things here in America and that was kind of a common world thing all right well I hey here's what got important imported here's the tariff. We pay that, it's all done, right? Like you don't have to worry about who's in and outside when you tax income, then it matters who's in your borders. And this is actually how borders kind of got more solidified. They actually had mm. loose borders. This is why when you look at those older maps, they kind of have these loose, they don't match each other as far as where the borders are because it's kind of irrelevant. And the people of Alsace-Lorraine is actually a particularly sad one because it was like it was I wasn't sick, I think it was 60-40 or something, but like French and German people like Cohabitating, right? Like living together, forming communities together all in the same land. And of course, the French and the German people establish an income tax. And who wants that money? Well, they both do. They want 100% of that income tax for the people who live there. So, what, what do they do? They try to claim the land as their own. All of it, as opposed to just some of it, and so this is actually huge. It, it's a income tax is responsible for a lot more than you even think. Like it's yeah. it's, it's responsible for war, and it's responsible for the borders we we're talking about. Go ahead, Brad.
2: Cody, it's not fair that they aren't paying their fair share in El Their fair share. Because historically they have been marginalized and we need to make sure that their funds are going properly to make sure that we get all pet projects taken care of. Oh, by the <laughs> way. <Yeah>.
0: Um. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, it's one of those that kind of like masquerade around is like virtuous, right? Like just being like, Hey, I'm just trying to, like you said, the fair share thing, but who ends up paying the price? Look, you can believe you don't pay the price. Guess what happens if your company if their taxes goes up uh, now, and this is something I can tell you from restaurant ownership, what happens when their when their taxes go up by, you know, twenty percent or you know something like, man, when I was working at Applebee's and the the ACA thing came around. Guess how many full time workers we could have afford to have on staff after that. Like none, everybody was down to part-time or lying about their hours. Those are the two things that you can do, you know? And it's just, and it wasn't that we, like, I get that you think that like, oh, maybe we're just an evil company. or don't care. Look, I saw the books, restaurants, especially like usually are hovering around oh, the, well, I I, I guess if I'm going to talk about your average restaurant, they actually make negative money and go out of business. But as far (laughs) as like most restaurants that don't go out of business, you're looking at like the 1%, 2%, 3% range. If you're in fast food for sit down places, you're probably looking at three to 5%. There was not a single company um, that reported over 10% actually in, in, in sales. So like you're looking at 10% or less. So if you juice up, juice it up uh, this in the news today, Joe Biden's looking at the biggest tax increase, instit- instituting the biggest tax increase since 1942, and this is devastating. And this is devastating to employment. And it is something that wars are literally fought over. It is something that has literally collapsed entire countries and economies. And we, just, you can just say, you can say it's like getting them to pay their fair share. I would want them to pay their fair share too. If I, if people must pay, everybody should pay what's fair. But ultimately that the buck stops with them as opposed to the buck stops. Yeah. Way before it gets to me, right. That, that I don't see a, a pay increase or anything like that. All they do is they hire less people. They cut more hours. I was part of a, if I'm going to talk about restaurant management, I was part of a Buffalo wild wings and a Texas roadhouse. And we converted each one of them into like, this is in Washington when they did the insane um, local tax in mm-hmm. Seattle. Um and we converted both of them into a, like, a, a sizzler style. Cafeteria style. Yeah, you know. yeah. Where you order at the beginning. We hired a person at the registry, yeah. You got rid of all their servers. People there, uh, the people, even that we hired, who were making that $15 an hour, like, minimum wage and paying the extra taxes on it, um, were bunking, like, four to a room, like, going four to an apartment or whatever. It was not a... It's not good. <laughs> if you think it goes well, then you need to talk to more people. Is all I can say because it does go well maybe for some people, and you can find individual examples. But by and large, I mean, what happens when they raise taxes for every you know nine hundred thousand people that get lifted into the next state? You get a million and four hundred thousand people that fall into the lower class. You know, it's just it's punishing. I don't know. I don't
1: understand. well when the Fed good. Sure. I just always say when the feds printing, you know, one point nine trillion at the drop of a hat, why do we bother even collecting taxes anymore? Like what's, what's the
0: point? <laughs> keep it. Just keep it. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Well, I've
2: never heard of a minimum wage that doesn't co- that doesn't coincide or an increased minimum wage doesn't coincide with a tax waiving. Okay, if you make under fifteen dollars an hour, guess what? We're not gonna collect any income tax from any state, mm-hmm. local, FICA, anything. We're just not gonna collect anything from you. And people go, oh, that's a good idea. And the feds are like, no, no, terrible idea because they want that money. But but this also gets back to Hody with minimum wage and stuff. It's the same thing. If you're going to go ahead and increase taxes or increase the wage, I've talked to people out there and they all, everyone of my lefty friends is like, well, it, we just got to have an even playing field. And I'm like, yeah, I know what you're trying to do to the playing field. You're trying to make the playing field more fair for you. And us in the middle are going to get screwed because when you sit there and say, I'm going to raise minimum wage $15 nationally. I can count three restaurants that are going to go out of business. Just three three restaurants that are going to go, it's not worth it. There's not enough revenue in this town. Or I'm going to increase automation. Or I'm just going to go and have the worst service like you just said possible. I'm going to go to a sizzler model. And I'm just going to lay everybody off and just figure out how I can do this as cheap as possible.
1: Or, or okay. if the government were smart, they would just eliminate all payroll taxes. Mm. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, like Mm. there was, and that's why, (laughs) I mean, that's why it's a part and parcel of the fair tax proposal, for instance, Mm. is if you look at low end earners, like that's the one tax no one can escape is FICA and and Medicare. Like everybody pays that. And like, no matter how little you make, you're paying that. And, and think about how much more we could potentially positively impact this situation if you know if the end goal is let's get more net money into the pocket of these end workers well one way is to you know increase the minimum wage well the unintended consequence you get with that is well less workers are going to get hired then if you eliminate the payroll tax you're eliminating the cost on both sides. You're eliminating the side that the employer has to pay of that payroll tax, as well as the amount that's coming out of the pay- the person's paycheck. So, like, that's why, like, it, the, it's insane to me that, like. more people aren't proposing this and it just shows you just what a racket government is that no one is proposing that. And that, you know, they're all just playing on the same team against us. The people is that's the solution, but nobody's saying it. And that's as telling as anything right there.
2: Jordan, I'm calling the police right now. You're making way too (laughs) much. gonna.
0: I was reading the uh, some economists that were trying to like justify the tax, and it's funny because you go back to the even the Trump tax cuts. I have very few thing, good things to say about Donald Trump. Uh, the tax cuts were one of the good things that I'll give to him. Uh, not the taxes that he increased elsewhere with the tariffs right. and everything, but at least the taxes that he did decrease. Um, huge. Uh, say, I mean, I, I was working at a mom-and-pop steakhouse here in Utah, and, I mean, we're talking upgraded all our products, Payers. the difference. better.
1: You're in Utah, lower tax yeah. rate. States with higher tax rates saw increases on their federal taxes because they capped state write-offs uh, of state-level lo- taxes at 10000 on the itemized deductions. So the people who felt that savings were disproportionately in low-tax states like Utah. So I had a tax increase on my income tax. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: Terrible. Because I, I –
1: because yeah. I wasn't able, like I um, and, and I can see what there's some rationale to it, because basically um, what the bill did was it, it it prevents the likes of like California and whatnot from um, basically hiding some of their tax burden in the federal tax burden because they can allow people to write off more of the state tax paid on their federal tax. Um, but it means that people in higher tax states end up paying more tax in a lot of cases on the federal. Um, so. in
0: general... And maybe I'm looking at the wrong thing. I'm, I mean, I am looking this up. It looks like the the high, the high highest bracket, which unfortunately, even as a mom and pop steakhouse, I could go off on this forever. Well, and, it, pretty- and this
1: is where it depends on your mix of things. Like, do you have a house? Do you have different other, de- you know, um, sure. deductions that you can take? So it, it really is. It could be across the board, but. In my particular case, I ended up with a net increase.
0: Yeah, well, and and I'm specifically talking about business, I guess, in this case, because sure, we went sure. we went from 38 uh, percent, it looks like, to 21 percent. 17 percent is not not insignificant, guys. Yeah, and it was really big. I mean, we did a lot. I mean, of that's cool a full time account potentially, right there. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it. it was, I mean, it was huge. I mean, and it bought us, like I said, we increased our product, we decreased our menu prices, we increased employee wages. Yeah. I mean, we were able to do a lot of cool things with 17%. I mean, when, when you're in a business that's like in, in the habit and this one in particular, isn't, I mean, they're making, like I said, most sit down places making between three and 5%. They're probably closer to the half a percent to 1% situation. Mm-hmm. And when you're in that situation and somebody says here, save 17% of your money. I mean, it's, it's unreal. And it's one of those, the economists even had to talk about it. And they talked about how the Trump tax cuts, at least in the business end, actually did yield higher revenues. It wasn't, it's funny because the, the, the big story was that it wasn't as high as what other countries were making. The, the, the income revenue didn't go up as high, but isn't that the point? More people got to keep their money, but they still spent more. Right, right. The the Laffer curve, right? And so like what what we did is like with those tax cuts, we actually ended up making more income. So with Biden then looking to increase taxes, you're actually going to look at a penalty in revenue. So not only do you not have the money, but they, the government, aren't going to have the money. So is it worth it for them to make you have less money if the price they pay is to have less money as well? They get a little power over you, but I mean, they're going to be feeling the pain. It's, It's a stupid thing to do like that. I don't know. We can probably have one about taxes sometime. I, I know this is getting off track of well, solar I, energy. definitely in my
1: my wheelhouse uh, yeah. if you ever want wow. uh, to hit taxes. I'll, I'll be all over that. Sweet. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I, we'll, do we'll do medical because my, my wife works in billing, and we just – it's insane what the government does. One formula oh, yeah, destroy so, healthcare.
0: I'm yeah. – <laughs> I used to I I worked at a hospital. I worked as a CNA. I was just I was an EM I was an EMT. I was actually a paramedic too. Um and so like I did like the IVZ AKGs and even then I learned so much about it. It's it's you peek behind the curtain for a little bit and it gets crazy on healthcare. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, we will be recording again later this week. If you're tuning in, we love you to death. Thank you so much. Getting a lot of p- positive feedback on the show, which is why they're still keeping us on the air. Um, but it's been, it's been really awesome uh, guys. I'll talk to you all later and you all have an excellent evening. You too. All right. Man. Thanks to you,
2: man.